Well, when I was in elementary school, I uh, signed up for soccer. Um, I was not very good at soccer. I changed school a lot when I was a kid, and so I kept changing the sports that we played, so I never got good at anything. But I, I just wanted to be outdoors and wanted to be with my friends. And thankfully, the elementary school I ended up in, when I was interested in soccer, had this policy. It's one of those, like, everybody gets to play, everybody gets to play. So they had, um, they would make as many teams as there were people who wanted to play. And so there was the A team, and they had a special uniform that was like satin, was like white and gold satin. They looked like celebrities. They had their own tracksuit that they could wear. They had their own bus that they would travel in. And uh, they were like really the, the big men on campus. And then there was the B team, which was still very good. If you played for the B team, you, I mean, your, your stock was high. Even the C team, you had to play well. I, I was on the E team. Um, the E team was there for the people who couldn't make the D team. I was the vice captain, though, which was cool, because when the captain played for the D team, then I was giving the pep talk at halftime, and I got to wear the little captain's armband, and, and it was just kind of fun. We didn't get to play much soccer, because no, none of the other schools in our area had an E team. Um, but the good thing about it is that if you were on any of the teams, you got to go on the the train ride trip down to Greytown. And that's, it was all about that. That was, what, what all, that. that was the big adventure of your high school career was that you get to go on the overnight train down to Greytown and you get to go and play soccer with all these other schools in this big tournament. And, um, and sure enough, we did that. And there were all these schools, and so our A team played multiple games, the B team played multiple games, the C team played multiple games. We found only one other school that had an E team, they didn't really have an E-team, but they felt bad that we'd come all the way there, so they kind of assembled one with kids that hadn't played soccer before. Some kids who had some physical disability issues were on that team, and so we beat them, which was awesome, <laughs> because it was like the first time we ever won. We won by like two goals or something crazy, and I mean, I just felt like a million bucks. Here I was on the winning team for the first time in my life, and... Um, you know, none of our kids had crutches, so that was an advantage, but um, we, we did well. Anyway, so on the way back, though, um, after we played just our one game and we were victorious, um, most of our other teams didn't do well in that particular tournament, and the A team had lost all of its games, and so people were kind of despondent on the, on the, the train ride home. They were just sort of down about that, but man, we, we, were, we were victors. You know, we came, we saw, we conquered. And we let everybody know. And I, I remember bragging about how we won 100% of the games we played. Um, and none of the other teams could say that. And at the time, it, it, you know, it, it was whatever. People were just, I don't even remember their reaction. But now looking back, it just feels incredibly pathetic, doesn't it? <laughs> to, to boast about something in the presence of people that are all better than you at this anyway. And so that's kind of the lesson that we see Jesus teach his disciples tonight in Luke chapter 9. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Um, I've titled the sermon, Humble Pie, and we learn that greatness is on the kids' menu. You find humble pie on the kiddies' menu, it turns out. Um, last week, we saw the healing of the demonized boy after the Mount of Transfiguration. The, the disciples unable to cast out this demon of this, this uh, boy that had been possessed, and so we looked at that in some depth. Um, 
And now we move on. For the better part of three years or so, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He's been teaching his apostles. They've learned a lot, but there's still times when they appear to kind of miss the point. And tonight is one of those times. So we're going to read from verse 43 and following. Luke chapter 9, verse 43. All were astonished at the majesty of God. That's from the miracle from last week. And then it says, but while they were all marveling, At everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered to the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Wow, just a very powerful lesson. Um, we're going to learn three steps to a recipe for humble pie from this little, session, this little section so that you can be great in God's eyes. Three steps to a recipe for humble pie. Firstly, true greatness modeled, true greatness missed, and then true greatness mandated. You see that as it unfolds here. So firstly, let's look at true greatness modeled. Um, in verse 43, it says they were astonished at the majesty of God. So you've got Jesus Christ himself here on the scene. This is a person that everybody agrees is truly great. He is the Son of God. He's able to do this spectacular miracle. Um, Comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration where the apostles just heard God say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He comes down. There's this um, this demonic possession that no one can do anything about. And he just speaks to the demon and casts it out. He's got this power over nature, power over disease, power over death, and power over demons. Um, This is true Greatness And the people who have seen this are astonished by it. But while they were marveling at everything that he was doing, just all, everything that he did was impressive, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. This is what every preacher wants, by the way. For our words to sink into your ears and not ricochet off them into the atmosphere. Um, I like that word picture. And then he says this, so he's, he's preparing them. What I'm about to say to you is important. It needs to penetrate. It needs to get in. And then he says, the Son of Man, a title that he uses for himself, really his favorite title, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That word delivered, paradidomi, it means to be betrayed, to be handed over. It is a word that goes with criminals. It is not a word that goes with deity. You would not expect God to be handed over to the authorities so that he can suffer. And yet that's exactly what's being predicted. I'll be delivered into the hands of men. And the implication is that the people um, being handed over, we might might use the word arrested. If I say to you, I'm going to be arrested, you know what that means. That means I'm going to be put in a position where I don't have any power and authority that the people over me do. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to be handed over to the power of men. So the son of man is going to end up in the hands of men. And there's just this irony, like he, he's really in charge of all men, and yet he's going to be given over um, to the situation where he is under other people. Now, we know what that means. They don't get it. 
but we see here greatness being modeled because at the height of his popularity, at the height of the, his power on display, he is reminding his followers of the real reason that he came. He didn't come to impress people. He came to die a humiliating death. And so he is, he's modeling his greatness by by the humility of one who is so powerful that he's in, in charge of the world just by what he says, to restrain that power in order to be handed over to human beings. The son of man, the top of the, the pyramid scheme, you know, the, oh, that's not the right word, the top of the um, whatever, you know, the pyramid, is going to be handed over to the people at the bottom. Unbelievers. And so, in a sense, he's modeling for us what true greatness is, is like. True greatness is somebody who's willing to give up the glory that people give them in order to take the suffering that comes from people for the greater good, and in this case, for the salvation of mankind. So you've heard it said, we're, we're never more like God than when we are humble, which is such an interesting statement because God is the most majestic, but the, the best way to be like God is to be humble. So God became man so that he would be tossed into the malfunctioning meat grinder of the legal system, handed over to the hands of men on the off chance that they might get it right. And guess what? They don't. They falsely accuse him. They punish him. And they kill him. And all of this is done as a substitute for those who are undeserving. And so the incarnation is the, the truest model of greatness in all of Scripture the humility of the incarnation of God becoming flesh. I'll read for you Philippians 2, everyone's favorite passage on this topic, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his willingness to be this humble, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name. So the first step in the recipe to to make humble pie and eat humble pie is to, to recognize this model of true greatness. This is how God's economy works Paul told the Philippians, have this mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. When Christ models what true greatness is, the way we respond is we want to be like him. And so have this mind that you have. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. And in James 4, 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see that play out in Jesus' life? Jesus did not... um, consider the equality with God and the majesty that he had something to be grasped or to clung to, but rather emptied himself so that he would take on the form of humanity, be born as a little vulnerable baby and be handed over to men eventually and and be obedient to the point of death, even this death on the cross that was coming by these hands of men. He was willing to do all of that. And because of that, God highly exalts on him and bestows on him the name above every name. And in, that's how God works, not only with his son, but in his entire economy. That's why James says that God opposes the proud. When you set yourself up to be proud, you make God your rival. But when you humble yourself, you make God your advocate. 
And he wants to exalt you at that point. So the best thing you can do to pursue true greatness is to follow the model of Christ who emptied himself of that greatness so that you empty yourself of greatness and then you align yourself with what God wants. What God wants is glory for his kingdom and if you are raising yourself up, you're competing with him. But when you're emptying yourself, you're aligning with him and then that's when he puts you to work. If your agenda detracts from his glory, you have made a rival out of him. And you can think of the, in ancient Rome, you had Caesar. And if you look at the history of the Caesars, their position was, uh, was usually pretty precarious. Um, and, and so they had these generals. And so Caesars often came from the ranks of the generals, the military leaders who could get the army on their side and get the people behind them, became the most powerful people. But once you're there, all the other generals are now kind of next in line if you die. And if you don't die, they can help you along with that process so that they become next in line. And so there's this fine line for a general because a general works his way up through the army until he's in charge of a massive portion of the army where the only military might above him is the Caesar. And his job is to expand the Roman Empire, to defend the honor of Caesar, to to get tax money for Caesar, to make Caesar look great, to do what Caesar wants, to keep Caesar um, happy, to keep Caesar safe. But if he does a really, really good job at that, then he actually becomes someone that could dethrone Caesar. And so Caesar was always most concerned about his generals more than anything else. Because if he got a whiff of disloyalty, he would have them executed immediately, just remove the threat. On the other hand, a general who was doing what he was meant to do, who was not wanting Caesar's position, who did not want to dethrone Caesar, but just wanted to do what Caesar wanted done, that general would be honored above anyone else. And that's the way Caesar would keep his generals happy. You can't be Caesar, but I'm going to give you the next best thing. And so when you come back from a campaign where you have taken ground for Rome, or you've done something I told you to do, then, then Caesar would grant a triumph for the general. And this is like a big parade through the streets of Rome that would come, and there would be like, you know, all the captives and people throwing petals and incense and like a big cheering and everyone, and kind of to see... If, if you do what I tell you to do, this is how you get exalted. But if you, if you try to take my job, you're dead meat. And it's as simple as that. Then there's nothing in between. And so when James says God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble, you've got this idea that, well, if you're on board with what God wants for his kingdom, the expansion of his kingdom, the, the glory of God the Father, the glory of the Son, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're working with that agenda, then God can use you. And he can, he can put you wh- wherever it is that he's designed you to be, and that's where you're going to be most fulfilled. That's where you're going to be most joyful. And you may end up in a position where you're most honored. Because people are appreciative of what you're doing. And so they thank you for it and they honor you for it. And at that time, you have to be careful that you don't shift your allegiance from doing what you're doing for the Lord to now doing what you're doing for the, the praise and the glory and the thanks and the appreciation and the popularity that comes from the people who are appreciating that. So here's some diagnostic questions to help you know if you're somebody who hoards glory for yourself. One, do you brag about the gifts that God has given you? 
I mean, anytime anyone brags about anything, what they're bragging about is a gift that God has given them to use for his glory. Can you see the irony in bragging? Whether it's your job or your athletic prowess or your intelligence or whatever it is, whenever you're showing off, you're taking gifts God gave you to use for his glory and you're using them to draw attention to yourself, away from God. Here's another question. Do you make sure that the new people at work know how long you've been at the company or or whatever that looks like in your forum? That the new people come in, you quickly want to establish the pecking order and show them, I'm the one that you should be respecting around here. I've been here long, I make the most sales, I'm whatever, here's my title, here's my business card. I just want you to know who I am. Or when you, when you meet someone new, it doesn't matter if they're above you or below you, you just treat them the same. You've heard the old joke about how, do you, how can you tell if somebody's been to Harvard, if they graduated from Harvard, how can you tell? Because they tell you. <laughs> it's only a matter of time uh, that they're going to work into the conversation. You know, when I was at Harvard, um, you know, uh, whatever. And some of us act that way with whatever we feel our little accomplishment is. What's your Harvard? What's your thing that you always work into the conversation that you've done or that you're good at that you want people to respect you for? And then just remind yourself, God gave that to you so that you could give him glory. Here's another one. Do you serve in church to be seen, to be thanked, to be commended by others? He said, but you just said, you know, if I'm faithful that I may end up in a position where I'm being thanked or being appreciated. Yes, but that's different from serving in order to get that. Because remember, when you humble yourself, he does exalt you. That does happen. But if you exalt yourself and you're seeking the praise and the appreciation and the prominence and whatever that comes with it, then that's when he wants to humble you. So that's the first thing we we learn in this little pericope here is that true greatness is modeled by our Savior Jesus Christ. Secondly, true greatness is missed. Now we see the scene where they completely missed the point here. Um, Verse 45. Um, It says, But they did not understand the saying, so he predicts that he's going to be delivered to to the hands of men. They did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And then it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) What? (laughs) What a non sequitur. You're kind of like, where's this coming from? So a a major ingredient for our humble pie is found just by noting the context of what, let's just retrace, let's just remind ourselves what just happened. One, Jesus reveals his unmitigated kingdom glory while Peter makes a fool of himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. Two, Jesus comes down and proves that he proves his deity and his power by effortlessly casting out a demon that was too tenacious for the disciples to deal with. Three, Jesus tells about how he's going to be arrested and handed over to die as a substitute for his people. The disciples are too scared to even ask him what he means. Four, let's discuss who's the greatest. I mean, what? It just makes no sense. It makes no sense. Imagine the question. Let's just play a thought game, you know, like let's, an icebreaker in the youth group tonight. That's a, second to God, which one of us is the greatest? 
You know, we all, okay, second to Jesus being the greatest person in the world, who's next? Without realizing that the gap between place number one and place number two is so large that you just sound pathetic, even talking about it. It's like blades of grass in the shade of a redwood tree fighting over who's the tallest among them. You know, second to the tree, who's the next in line? It doesn't matter. You're just a blade of grass. And when a blade of grass wants to be taller than all the other blades of grass, guess what you do with that blade of grass? You mow it down. So the 12 are baffled. They're baffled by what's going on with what Jesus says, that he's going to be handed over to the the hands of men. But verse 45 tells us why. They did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them. It was hidden so that they might not perceive it. Now, we've bumped into this little way of, that God deals with his people a few times in the Gospels. And of course, the most famous of them is Matthew 13, verse 13, where they say, why do you teach in parables? And he says, because it's been granted to you to, to know the truth, but it has not been granted to them. I speak in riddles so that, you, that not everybody understands. The only people that understand are the ones that I give the key to. And so here we see this again. He tells them something. He reveals information that something is about to happen and they don't understand. And then we're told because he didn't want them to understand. So he wants them to know but not understand. It's kind of like I want to have this on record when I can't talk to you anymore because I'm dead It'll be on record. At that point, I will pull it out of the file of your memory and you'll remember it that I said it. So he wants them to know that what is about to happen to him is predicted. It's part of his sovereignty. It's part of his plan. It's part of his purpose. This is not an accident. This is not things going off the rails. So he tells them beforehand that it's going to happen. But he doesn't want them to act on that yet. It's a really interesting thing to see the Holy Spirit hiding truth. We just don't think of that as part of his role. His job is to reveal truth. We pray every Sunday, illumine our minds that we may understand the truth. I guess if I wanted to pray a little bit more biblically this Sunday, I would pray, Holy Spirit, illumine our minds for us to understand the truth that you want us to understand today and hide the truth that we're not ready for yet. But everyone would open their eyes and be like, what's he praying? I mean, you kind of need a sermon on that to explain that that's in line with God's will, that there's sometimes things that you don't know yet, even though it's there. Have you ever read something in the Bible and you, have you ever thought this, this thought? I've never seen that before. I've, I've, I'm, I must have read that book a hundred times. I never... I never understood that thing until right now. Hopefully that happens to you a lot during preaching. (laughs) That's the purpose of preaching, is to bring some of those up. And yet, you might have some insight that clicks for you on a Sunday because it gets explained that the person next to you still doesn't understand. And that's okay. Don't get impatient with other people. Imagine all the people that are impatient with you that you only finally got this thing right now. And I mean, this still happens to me on the regular where I'm like, I've read the Bible 
a lot in my life. And yet, when I'm reading, I'm, I'll, something will strike me and I'm like, I never saw that before. And so that's what's happening, is that the Holy Spirit reveals to you what he wants you to know at the time he wants you to know it, and apply it because there's another place where Jesus says, I, I can't tell you everything right now, it'll be too much for you. But the Holy Spirit comes and he'll reveal it to you as you need to understand. So it's all there, and don't let that be a discouragement from reading your Bible, that should be an encouragement, read it more, because it's not like other books. It's not like, and you know, my kids, my kids are reading junkies, you know. And um, they'll, they'll take out these massive books from the library. And then a few months later, they'll take out the same books and they'll read them again. And I'm like, but you already know the end of the story. I, I can't do that. I've, I don't think I've ever read a storybook twice because I know the ending. But the Bible's not the same. Yes, I know the ending of the Bible too. I read that part. But it's, a living, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, doesn't it? And you've experienced that if you're a true believer and you have the spirit in you, that it's, the truth gets revealed when the truth gets revealed. So these, these people, they don't know what to do. Verse 45, they're afraid to use a lifeline and figure it out. Um, they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So they're just like, they're kind of, he's like, I'm, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they look at each other and like, who's the son of man again? What's happening to him? It's just sort of, hey, Peter, just, <laughs> listen, I just did the whole thing with the tents. Let's build tents. Let's build tents. I made a fool of myself. I'm not doing it. You do it. Well, I tried to cast out the demon. I couldn't do it. I'm kind of embarrassed. Okay, well, we're just going to let that one slide. We're just not going to ask him about that one. But it, again, it just reminds us of how, how humble these men should be. <laughs> how, how obvious to them it should be that they're not ready for glory. They don't even know what Jesus is talking about, and they're the inner group. And they're too afraid to even ask him. Now, what makes an interesting study is I hunted down every passage where the 12 disciples are jockeying for position or where they get their mom to do it for them. And in every single case, it's the same spark that ignites that jockeying for position. In every case, it's Jesus predicting his death. I'd never seen that before. <laughs> Until I was like, I, I wonder what it is that triggers that. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. That every time Jesus predicts his death, the next thing that happens is they're like, I want to sit at the left hand and the right hand in the kingdom. Oh, I want to, um, maybe I'm the greatest. No, maybe he's the greatest. No, I'm... what sparks that? It's almost like it's, it's that scene that maybe you've lived through where you're in your, you know, you're in your company, you're in your firm, and, and there's this announcement where they call you all in. They're like, we've got really bad news. The vice president is turns out he's got cancer he's got six months to live and everyone's like oh that's brutal so are they going to be promoting from within <laughs> you know it's like as soon as there's the guy in charge is leaving well who's going to take his place i think maybe that's kind of what always sparks this it's like whenever jesus talks about something happening they don't know what that means he's going to be delivered they, they, they never seem to realize it's going to go as badly as it ends up going 
But it sparks enough of their thinking to be like, yeah, at some point Jesus is going to be out of the picture and then one of us is going to be in charge and I think it should be me. Or, or let's give them credit. I think it should be Peter. No, 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 it shouldn't be Peter because, you know, he's got no filter. You know, if you're going to be in charge, Jesus is wise and careful with his words. We need someone like that. We need someone who never speaks, like um, one of the Simons, you know, <laughs> or that nobody even knows about, you know. Get, get that guy, get Bartholomew, whoever he is. No, 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 you can't have him. It has to be somebody that was in the inner circle. It's got to be James or John. No, I don't think... Of... And they have an argument about which one of them is worthy to take the place of Jesus when he goes. Pretty pathetic. But don't we do the same thing sometimes? Our version of this is just thinking about yourself rather than thinking about the other person. Thinking about how whatever bad thing's happening, how does this affect me? You know, if, you, if, if there was someone, I don't know, Whatever, if your pastor said, I've just found out I've got six months to live, would you think, oh, that's pretty bad for him? Or would you think, that's pretty bad for me? Because now we've got to go through the whole finding a new pastor thing. Well, we got Will, which is why I never drink anything that Will hands me. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't think he would, but it's in me, so it might be in him. Anyway, um, but you know, when you get bad news about someone, is your first thought, how's this going to affect me? That's what they're doing. Jesus just said, I'm going to go through a trial. I'm going to go through trauma. It's about to happen. And they think, okay, well, what are we going to do when, it goes, when that happens? How about the biggest problem here is that they've missed an opportunity to minister to Christ. They've missed an opportunity to just comfort him. So we don't, we don't understand what you're going through, but, man, you keep talking about this. It's on your mind. Maybe we can pray for with you or for you or you want to talk about it some more or no they're just okay Jesus is going through something oh well Dave Harvey uh, has written a brilliant book called Rescuing Ambition um, I like it it's a red book with a with a ladder on and a guy climbing down the ladder <laughs> and so it's a book about ambition because you might ask yourself well is ambitious is ambition wrong? Is, want, is wanting to know who's in charge or who's the greatest? or Is that always wrong? Um, he says this. He, he tells a little story of his own life and kind of confesses what happened in his own heart. Recently, one of the men from the team of pastors I serve with was telling me about a new initiative that the team wanted to undertake. I thought it was a great idea. In fact, I thought it was a great idea a couple of months ago when I thought of it and suggested it in the first place. Now, my idea was being relayed back to me as if it had arrived by courier from some distant planet. And instead of recognizing that credit isn't important anyway, and what's important is that the church is being served, I carefully referenced my prior conversations and thanked the men around me for being so easy for me to lead them. Unquote. I think that's just so transparent of him, but as I was reading that, I mean, this has happened in my life. I'm sure this has happened in your life, where there's some credit that's being attached to someone else that you know you deserve. I came up with that idea. How come everyone's thinking this is the genius that's coming up with it? I mentioned this at the last meeting. 
And so I'm not going to say it like that. I'm going to be like, that's such a great idea. Yeah. Like, remember when we spoke about that in the last meeting when you know, <clears throat> I brought it up and, um, and you said you'd need to think about it. I'm glad you thought about it. Thank you so much for responding to my brilliant wisdom here, you know. I mean, and yet that's, that's what we're like when we're wanting greatness for ourselves. Somebody once said that there's the smallest package in the world is a man wrapped up in himself. And here are these 12 apostles who are all packages with, you know, self-addressed labels. So, is ambition always bad? Well, the answer is it depends. It brings us to our third point. True greatness mandated. We are actually mandated to want to be great. But look, verse 47. When, uh, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, you can read their minds, took a child put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You're talking about who's the greatest among you? You're asking the wrong question. The one who is least among you is actually great. Actually, The one that appears the least, because he's the least concerned with making himself great, is a person who's actually great, because that's what true greatness is. The person who doesn't want the credit for themselves. The artist, the surrealist artist Salvador Dali, he said, when I was three, I wanted to be a cook. When I was four, I wanted to be Napoleon. And my ambition has been growing ever since. <laughs> Ambition can be bad. It can be overwhelming. It's, it's, I want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest. And some ambition is bad if it's merely for your personal self-aggrandizement, which it usually is. But there is a holy ambition. God doesn't want you to settle for mediocrity in your spiritual life. He doesn't want you to settle for mediocrity in your marriage. He doesn't want you to settle for mediocrity in your ministry for him, the, the, the kingdom work, your career. He wants you to be ambitious to do the best that you can with what he's given you to do in the spheres that he's called you to be. He doesn't want you to be a mediocre parent. He wants you to constantly strive to get better at the things that he's called you to do for his glory, not for your own. And so Jesus helps these disciples, like a, a skilled physical therapist, he's popping a, a um, dislocated shoulder in. He kind of gets his disciples and realigns their ambition so that it's not focused on themselves, missing the point, and instead he brings a prop, a prop that we have a large supply of here at uh, Christ Fellowship. He brings a child, <laughs> verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, and the, the word there is for a young child, um, so this isn't like a teenager that he's calling, this is a, well, just a kid, and put him by his side. So the, this shows us as well, there's this crowd, you know, that the, all the stuff's going on with the demonized boy and all this, and there's parents around, and there's people, and, and he's talking to his disciples as they're walking, and this is happening, and you can kind of picture them stopping, and him just watching this go down, reading their minds, reading their thoughts. Okay, I got a lesson for you. And he says this, about, but first let me, get a, let me get my prop. 
and there's like some random little street urchin with, you know, snotty nose, and let's call him Billy the Kid, you know, this little kid, Billy, come Billy, come over here, come over here. And uh, Billy's like, okay, you got any candy? And he's, stand here, Billy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you. And puts him by his side, the greatest person in the world, next to some anonymous street urchin, <laughs> you know, is how I'm picturing this kid, like some little latchkey kid who's just wandering in the streets, or just somebody who these disciples have no attachment to. It's not one of their kids. This isn't, this isn't anybody important. This is just a kid. And children in those days were considered by religious leaders to be a complete waste of time. Because the, the rate of infant mortality was so high, so many children died when they were so young, it became standard that you'd not even teach a child the Torah, the, the Bible, until they turned 12. Because the chances were that they were going to die anyway before that. And so why waste your time teaching them anything until they get to 12? Then they have their bar mitzvah. Okay, now you're a son of the covenant. You're going to live. Now we're going to teach you the Bible. The Talmud actually says this, uh, uh, Jewish commentary. Um, morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children destroy a man. <laughs> so sleeping in. Drinking in the middle of the day and talking to kids, three things that are going to ruin your life. So spending time with little Billy is not one of the seven habits of highly effective people. And yet Jesus says, you want to be great? You want to be effective? Consider the kid. He said to them, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. So anything you do for this little snot-nosed run, and you're doing it because you're a Christian, you're doing it because, me, because of me, because you love me, and because you want to, you want to please me, and that's the only, th that's the only reason you're, you're doing that, that's good. That's the same as doing it to me. And on a number of occasions in his ministry, Jesus said things like this, the, doing something to the least of these, you give a cup of cold water to the least of these, you're doing it to me. When did we visit you in prison? Well, when you visited those people in prison that didn't have anyone else to. Whenever you do anything in my name, so you're doing it because you're a Christian. And there's a lot of things that we do just because we're Christians. Let's face it. That's okay. You might say to yourself, you know, if I weren't a believer, I would not be doing this. That's okay. That's part of when you get baptized, that's what you're saying. I'm living a new life now, not my old life. I'm going to do things differently just because I'm a Christian. Quite frankly, if I weren't a Christian... I would not be going to church on a Sunday. I mean, life is so busy. I'm always surprised. That there's certain people who show up at church on Sunday. I'm like, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I'm surprised they're even there. What's the attraction if you don't believe in Jesus? So there's lots of things we do just because we believe in Jesus. He says to do this. I'm going to give money to this thing. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm going to spend time with this person that I usually wouldn't. Why? Because they're in the church and they're family. And I, I'm a Christian. So he says, if you... If you consider this child highly and you receive him, to receive means to, to accept him, pay attention. You're receiving me, Jesus says. So you can imagine this, the apostles kind of shuffling their feet here, like staring down at their feet, kind of awkward, little Billy's getting his 15 minutes of fame, and the disciples are just 
processing this. It's like Jesus just told them, hey guys, put down your whiteboard markers and stop drawing a flow chart for kingdom ruling and somebody play catch with Billy. Stop thinking about yourselves and where you belong and just get busy with the stuff that other people aren't doing. Get busy with the lowly stuff. There's a child here. This is a soul. This is an image bearer. This is more important right now than your plans for the future that may or may not happen. Matthew actually records a more shocking part of the conversation. Matthew 17, 3, also after the Mount of Transfiguration, so the same, the same event, Jesus actually said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus says, not only must you pay attention to and accept and receive the least of these, the people that have no bearing on your ambition, they're not going to bring anything to the party in making you great. Not only do you need to spend time on those people, you need to become like those people. Somebody who's anonymous, somebody who's just, just a kid in the pecking order of things. You need to be okay with that. So he's not saying, you know, you might think, wait a minute, are children models of humble character? Not the ones I've met. Except, except for, of course, except for those in this church. Um, generally, children are not models of humble character. He's not saying become like this child. This child thinks they're humble and you need to think you're humble. No, this child is l lesser in the the chain that we have established in our world of what's important. And uh, this made more sense in those days. In these days, children are like really put on top of the pyramid, aren't they? Um, oh, they're so important. Everything revolves around the kids. That's a different sermon and a bigger problem. But the idea here is like these people who can't contribute to our benefit and are really just little suction drains on our benefits, finances and time and patience and everything. We love you so much, my schnizzle. Thank you for coming. But um, these, these little ones, that's what we need to view ourselves as. Not trying to make everyone think that we're great, but not caring what other people think about us. That's one thing that is very, very endearing about children is that they don't, they're not like as self-conscious as we are about things. You know, we're like, does this match with this? And is this tucked in okay? And the, and the kid's just like, <laughs> you know. You know, Billy's just walking around, hasn't done his hair, hasn't wiped his face. Who cares, you know? There's just something endearing about, I'm not trying to show off for people. I'm just me. So Billy's not really the model. Jesus is the model. Billy is the means. Accepting, welcoming, admitting into your presence, paying attention to Billy, viewing yourself as Billy, viewing yourself as someone that, that needs help rather than somebody who's in charge. That's the means. Romans twelve sixteen, Paul said, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Friends, that is a command from God to you as a Christian. Don't be haughty. That means don't be... Don't think too highly of yourself. What's the opposite? Associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. 
who, who are the lowly? When everyone's flocking to this person and that person sitting by themselves, that's who you flock to. This is a revolutionary idea. This was something that became real to me while I was in seminary, and I, I just noticed the struggle in my own heart to want to be around the people who were, that I was going to benefit from, you know, professors that I'm going to learn from or magnetic personalities and that kind of stuff. And, and we would go to these gatherings and I'd be like, oh, I want to be with the, the pastor that invited us to his home or to the, the other the leaders of the Bible studies because they're like the cool people to talk to because they're, they're in seminary and they're studying stuff and they're upperclassmen, I can learn from them. And then it, it would like hit me that the people that were just kind of on the fringes, those are the people Jesus would go talk to. That's where you would find Jesus. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, like, who do I want to be like? And if the answer is not Jesus, you're in the wrong place. We want to be like Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus is like. He's not haughty. He's humble. That's why his 12 best friends that he chose are all like fishermen and like tax collector and instead of the intellectual elite. And that's what the rabbis had against him. It's like, yeah, we all are in our, you know, phylacteries and calling each other rabbi. And, and, and Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't dress like, the, like us. He doesn't talk like us. And he's not... He's having dinner with the, with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, they're the ones that need the physician. They're the sick ones. What are we even doing here? That needs to be your orientation as well. Find the bully, you know, find the little, the little kid that people aren't paying attention to, whoever that is. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's Philippians 2.3. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are all blades of grass on the same lawn. Jesus is the only tree. And when we're bragging about being a little taller than someone else, you're the E team bragging in the presence of the A team. It's just pathetic. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here's a verse to think about. 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a noble task he desires to do. So there is an ambition that's acceptable. If you aspire to be an elder, that's good. But then in the same list of qualifications, he says... In verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, 6, he, this elder person, must not be a recent convert, not, so not a new believer. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The condemnation of the devil is that the devil became proud. And so he was cast out of heaven. And a person who desires to do the work of the ministry, that's a good desire, but if that desire causes the person to be puffed up by conceit, thinking highly of themselves, they become useless. Because now, their pride, like Satan, makes them useless. They need to be cast out. So there's a fine line between ambition and conceit. 
you, it's okay to want to do the work for the glory of God. It's not okay to want to do that work for you, your glory. So you're never more like Jesus than when you're aiming for Billy's position. And you're never more like Satan than when you're gunning for God's position. You're never more like Jesus than when you are aiming for the lowly place. And you're never more like Satan than when you're aiming for the high place. So, I'm not saying you have to think of yourself as a worm. Do I have to think of myself as a nobody? No, you just need to stop thinking about yourself entirely and go buy Billy a cookie. Humble people do not think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. So I challenge you this very week to, to try stop thinking so much about yourself. Start looking out for the interests of others. Have a holy ambition to be useful for God's glory. Especially when you'll get no credit for it, no thank you, no benefit. Because that's the type of person that God sees as great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this reminder from Scripture. It's very convicting and and rightly, it's humbling, and I pray that you'd help us to be people who are humble, people who are okay being the, the kid in the crowd. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you'd use that to make us useful for your glory and for the good of all the people that need to hear the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, we have, have a few minutes for questions. Yes, Carol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good concept for us to wrestle with. Let me just repeat it. So when you, when you meet people that are not believers, they're clearly not believers, they don't call themselves believers, but they're prospering in this life. You know, they've got, you used an example, they have a nice yacht. Let's just say they have a yacht. Um, <laughs> and I don't have a yacht, but I'm a Christian. What's going on with that? You know, what, what, why have they got this prosperity? Or you sometimes meet Christians and the Christian does have a yacht and he does have prosperity. And, and what's going on there? And what you said is that, is, is it possibly the God of this world, Satan, just you know, keeping people comfortable and distracted by their possessions. Um, I, think that, I, th I think that God doesn't care about possessions at all. At all. Like, he doesn't have any concern for that stuff. He cons he's concerned about people's souls. So whether you have a yacht or you don't have a yacht is only as important as it affects your soul. And so some people, he gives wealth and prosperity and health in this life in great abundance, and they use it really well. They're not attached to it. They don't love it. They don't crave it. They use it. They spend it. They give it away. They help. They enjoy it. Give God glory for it. And they might lose it all, and they would not consider that a tragedy. It would be unexpected, but it would just be like, whether I have it, whether I don't, that's what Paul said. I, I've learned to, to be content with abundance and with need. You see that with Job. Um, 
So I think that's how we need to view possessions and anything material, anything like it's there for enjoyment, it's there for God's glory, it's there to share, it's there to bless others. And then the same people, whether they're believers or not, might be given something and then they treat it really badly. Either you're an unbeliever and you just don't even acknowledge that it comes from God and you just enjoy it. And you, yes, that can be a distraction from the things that could get you saved. But I know believers who are distracted by their toys. Believers who are saved have been given something by God and they can't bring themselves to spend it on other people. They can't bring themselves to do anything useful for the kingdom because they're ah, precious, it's mine, you know. And um, they're missing the point as well. And they're, they're forfeiting the eternal reward that comes from that sacrifice. So I, I just think that possessions are just that meaningless in the grand scheme of things. They're only there as a touch point for how you respond to them. Same with any trial even. Whether a trial happens to you or not, it's your response to it that is either amassing eternal reward or showing something in you that needs work, um, spiritual work. Does, does that help answer the question? Go read Psalm 73 as well, which deals with when the wicked prosper. And he says, I, I was acting like an animal. I was so upset by that. But then I remembered their end. And in the end, that's all that matters because eternity is very, very long. And the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Good question. Somebody else? Deb. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. How do you talk about gifts that God has given you without it sounding like bragging? I mean, I think in different cultures, it's diff it's, it's, there's different skills involved in communicating those things, but I know what you're asking because it's kind of like if somebody said to you, wow, you're, just, you're so good at this, like you're so hospitable and you're so generous, and, and you said, yeah, I am, it's my spiritual gift, we would think, Psh well, now, <laughs> let another man's lips praise you, not your own. But what's the person supposed to say? No, no, I'm not. You know, when I took French in college, our French teacher, she was from Paris, and she said part of French culture is when you give somebody a compliment, they're supposed to try to fish for more. And so you, you're supposed to say, no, 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 not really. So is that, is that, a, is that an, that's such a beautiful dress you're wearing. And then you say, vous trouvez, you know, really, you think, you know, um, Oh, yeah, it's fantastic, and it's part of the culture. In our culture, it's the opposite. You give somebody a compliment, they're not trying to fish for more. They're trying to shut it down, lest it look like they're bragging. You know? um, I think we just sometimes need to get over that a little bit. Um, I think if we have a realistic view of what's happening and we give God glory, um, I mean, Paul says that. He's like, what are we? we? We're jars of clay. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel. Um, I think if you view your gifts rightly, you aren't actually puffed up by them. Um, you know, I've been put in an awkward position like that before where someone says, you know, um, do you believe you're really gifted at teaching? I mean, how do you answer that? I'm like, I kind of do it for a living, so I hope so. <laughs> you know? I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's why I went into teaching. That's why I pursued that because I thought it was my gift. There's other things in spiritual things that I'm really bad at that I could do if God called me to do them. I just wouldn't enjoy it as much. I don't think I would have as as much impact with that. I don't think that that's bragging. Um, some people are good at hospitality. Some people are good at giving. Some people are good at prayer. 
And when you find someone like that and you say to them, you're so good at prayer, I really need you to pray for something, it would be unhelpful if that person said, no, no, I'm terrible at prayer. I'm like, well, that's just unhelpful. I know you're good at prayer and I need prayer. <laughs> so say, yeah, that's one of my gifts. I would love to deploy it for your good. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought the question was going one way, and I know the answer to that, so that's the one I'm going to answer. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll repeat both. So Connor's talking about the concept of eternal rewards, and he was, he was listening to um, another church, and, and their doctrinal statement spoke about how at the Bema Seat Judgment, Christians just get rewards. And then I have an answer for the question I thought you were going to ask, which is, is, is it true that Christians only get rewards? Or is there a forfeiture of reward? Because I did my master's thesis on that topic, so we could be here all night. But there's one verse, and then I'll answer your other one. Second um, Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. If I've ever given you a book or a card or something, that's the verse I always write on it. This is my favorite verse. That's why I did my thesis on it. Um, so whether we are at home or away, meaning whether we're dead or alive, um, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear, these are Christians he's talking to, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat, that's where we get the word bema, it's there in the Greek, um, the bema seat of Christ, so that each one of us Christians may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So at the bema seat, you're getting your recompense for your Christian life, and it's based on what you did in the body, in other words, what you do in this life, and your faithfulness with what you've been entrusted to do in this life. And yes, there is a forfeiture of, of reward as well, because he says it's based on what, what you do, whether good or evil. Now, that word evil is not porneia or kakos, which are the two words for like moral evil. It's a word faulon, which means worthlessness or lightness on the scales. So it's, you know, your sins are forgiven, but you're watching you know, several seasons, binge-watching several seasons of a reality TV show might not be sin. Well, it might be, but it might not be sin, but it's certainly foul on. It's certainly useless for the kingdom, right? And so your life is going to be measured on what you did that is valuable, good for the kingdom, that has weight, and for the things that you've done that are just trivial and, and useless. Um, and so everyone gets a d degree of reward in heaven. But then you did a, threw a curveball and changed the question on me and said, can you please quickly summarize the judgments? Um, no, the answer is no. I can't quickly <laughs> summarize the judgment. But there's a great white throne judgment for unbelievers. There's the um, sheep and goats judgment at the end of the tribulation that separates the people that were saved during the tri tribulation, believers and unbelievers. And then there's the Bema Seat judgment for Christians where we get our rewards. Uh, is that enough? Is that what you meant? Okay, those are the three main judgments, yeah. Good. Any, any other questions? <laughs> I prefer when you ask me stuff I know, like <laughs> that I've written something on. Oh, by the way, my book, The Preacher's Payday, is, is my thesis turned into a book. So it's everything about eternal reward. 
Um, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, Rusty. Great question. When Jesus delegated um, authority to the 12 to cast out demons and do miracles, did Judas also have that? And one of the views is because they went out in two by two, Judas would just kind of like stand there while whoever he was with was doing the miracles. It doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us. The other view is that, no, Jesus delegated that authority even to Judas, even though he was an unbeliever. Um, and and I, just, I just don't know. I don't know which one it is. I don't have a problem with thinking Judas, Judas was able to do miracles um, by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him to do that. Because remember, this was before Pentecost. So all of this happened in kind of an Old Testament dispensation of the Spirit. So the Spirit would come upon Samson to do amazing things, as we're about to find out. But Samson was not functioning as a faithful believer at the time. And I think that the Spirit can still empower a person to do miraculous things. Is that helpful? Yeah. Um, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, what about aliens? And the reason I'm asking this is because, I don't know if you've been following the news, it's like all over the news um, that these three whistleblowing pilots are talking about stuff that they've seen or people that they've spoken to that have seen evidence for al aliens. Um, and so I know that it's a question that's going to be brewing, and we were talking about it at gym today, and like people bringing it up. And so I just wanted to give you a basic grid to think through that, as I've been thinking through it. And no, I don't know, so don't ask me. <laughs> but the grid I'm thinking through it is, there's a whole field of this called astrotheology, which I've been reading about, which is interesting on how extraterrestrials would fit into our understanding of redemption and the plan of redemption. It's really fascinating. When I have it figured out, I'll tell you, but I don't yet. What I can tell you is this. Whenever there's anything you can't explain that happens, you can put it through this grid. It's either real, or it's a lie, or it's an imagination. Okay, so that's anything. If somebody says, God spoke to me, either he did, or they're lying, or they're crazy. It's always one of those three things, okay? So the same with these aliens. These people could be lying. I mean, I'm not going to stake any of my theology or comfort or anything on what people I've never even met say, because even people I've met lie. So these people, I have no idea. So it could be that. Okay, but let's rule that one out for now and say they're telling the truth about what they've experienced. It could be that they experienced it in a way that's a delusion, um, that they thought that or misinterpreted stuff. Okay, but let's just say it's not that. Let's say these guys know what they're talking about and they're not lying and they actually did see this. Then it's real. So I don't see why that's a big problem. I mean, it's scary maybe, but, but okay, so let's say there's some sort of technology now that you're in the okay let's let's say for the sake of argument that it's real and by the way it could very the lie is not a bad option because it's an election year coming up and if you look at the history of election cycles um the year before there's always a distracting media idea that gets circulated that people are focusing here so they're not looking here so but let's say let's just say for the sake of curiosity it's real that there's actually aliens and that they visited earth okay so one this is technology that could be human and we just don't know about it you know the chinese or whatever but let's say it's not it could be human and it's from the future because part of the technology might be coming back right and so it's still not alien still scary but not alien and then the third option is, let's say it's actually extraterrestrial, intelligent 
life that has come to earth, and we figure that out, and it's on the news, and it's indisputable, and we all believe it. I think that would be cool. Um, I don't see any problem with that. It, it would be like finding a new kind of whale in the ocean. It would be exciting. I mean, less scary if it's a whale than if it's something with a machine gun, but um, I don't think that we as Christians need to fear anything that's unknown. Like, there may be stuff that doesn't fit into our sphere of understanding. God revealed the Bible to us that we have everything we need for life and godliness. So it doesn't really matter what it is that's out there. It has to comply with the revelation that we have in Scripture. So whatever it is, it has to fit with what's the book of Revelation. And quite frankly, the book of Revelation is as bad as you can imagine. (laughs) There is nothing an alien could do that's more scary than what God says is definitely going to happen to this planet. Okay, Demons, hordes of demons coming out and hailstones and fire. And it's just like the worst thing that could ever happen is definitely going to happen. So aliens, I'm not worried about. I'm worried about the book of Revelation, right? And getting right with Jesus so I don't have to go through that. But um, all that to say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people you believe in aliens because it's very likely that it's not real. But also if you do and if you have an anxiety, just cast that care on to the Lord and just say, you know, go read the book of Revelation and have your fears recalibrated that aliens are the least of our worries. And, um, and know that my personal theory of, let's say it's real, my personal theory is that if it is real, it's part of God's plan to prepare the population of earth for the rapture because I have a, a very dear person in my life who truly believes that human beings came about because aliens planted us on this planet as their experiment and he believes this and he said that part of what he knows about this is that at some point the people who don't believe in this are all going to be removed from the experiment so that, that to me, because a lot of people have said to me, well, the rapture can't be real because if rapture happened and all the Christians disappeared, everyone else would just become a believer immediately because it's obviously true. N- not so fast. If there is an idea in the world that permeates where most of the world believes aliens are true because maybe they are, and they've come down and they've manifest and everything, and maybe the aliens tell these people, don't worry, we'll take care of the people that aren't on board, and then suddenly all the Christians disappear... Everyone's going to be like, yep, all those Christians who believed in God instead of the aliens, they're all gone. Now we can get on with things. And then they won't be be saved. And that's that's the delusion that Thessalonians says God will send so that they won't be saved. So whenever anything happens, I just try to filter it into, you know, the pandemic or whatever it is. Filter it into the revelation God's given us and realize he's in control. He's good. He knows about me and my situation and what I need. And, and I just, I trust in that. And so I actually get excited when there's stuff like this. Because whether it's real or not, it's not the point. The point is, the closer the human race gets to being comfortable with a rapture happening, the closer rapture is. And that's what you want. 